Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Okay, well, welcome everybody to the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice series. So it really gives me great pleasure to welcome Gabrielle Palmer back to the LSE, if only virtually for the moment. Gabrielle used to be a regular um, speaker at this Friday afternoon visiting series, and students along the years have learned a great deal from him. Gabrielle is a Chilean economist. He has taught at the Faculty of Economics at the University of Cambridge since 1981, a long and illustrious career. And Gabrielle is one of the few people I know who has two PhDs for his sins. Um, and I gather that was probably linked to the life of an exile waiting to go home and thinking, well, just study uh, one more. He has a DPhil in economics from Oxford University Gabrielle, I'm not sure. I think you might have worked with my former supervisor, who is Keith Griffin, um, but maybe not. Um, and uh, a PhD in political science from Sussex University. He's taught econometrics um, and development economics at Cambridge. He has a wide range of a huge and long list of publications. Once he asked me to write um, a recommendation to a foundation um, on his behalf. And I was stunned by the length of his, his CV. Um, and so I won't try to, to repeat um, uh, all his titles here. Um, if we're lucky, he, he's one of the few people I know too who has a ratio named after him called the Palmer Ratio. <laughs> and so I'm sure he'll say something about that during the talk. And if not, you can ask him about it. Um, but Gabrielle, really a big welcome to you uh, back to the school. And we're lucky to have with Gabrielle uh, a star in his own right, Branko Milanovic, um, who's a senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at the City University of New York. Uh, students in our program are already familiar with Branko's work, um, his, long, his, his work on long, long run economic change, his work on inequality, which is at the center of his endeavors these days, both uh, studying inequality in individual countries and globally, including in pre-industrial societies. He's published articles on these topics in the Economic Journal, the Review of Economics and Statistics, and the Journal of Economic Literature. So his book, Global Inequality, A New Approach for the age of globalization makes him the ideal um, commentator on Gabrielle's talk. So this is really a special event for us. And um, I, I welcome you both to the LSE. 
So Gabrielle, I turn the floor over to you or the screen. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the invitation and for Branco to uh, having agreed to comment on this presentation. Um, <clears throat> needless to say, the subject we're talking today is a rather complex one uh, and rather crucial on any, uh, at the moment, is crucial not just for middle-income countries, which is the traditional story, but also for uh, more advanced and also for more backward countries in the world. I'm going to share the screen to simplify and to help in the presentation. What I'm going to do in here, um, as you know, the title is <coughs> rather provocative one, like my, it comes from my last uh, paper, um, 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 why the rich stay rich no matter what. It's a very Latin American title in the sense that uh, one, I'm sure that uh, when people were writing about the persistence of institution, they had Latin American, Latin America very much in mind in the sense that the process of domination Latin America tend to be very much what in a statistic we call an stationary process, meaning shocks to the system tend to have temporary effect. The oligarchies, the oligarchies have this remarkable capacity to reinvent themselves in, in the new scenarios and continue their rather long-term and perennial rent-seeking uh, type of accumulation. Some of the key ideas I'm going to, <coughs> I'm going to discussed today. One, um, several people have mentioned that, but uh, Stiglitz makes this very clear in his one of his book on inequality is that inequality is a choice. Um, there's very little uh, kind of uh, determinant factors that are uh, involved in the interaction. The second one, one that for me has been crucial for my understanding on inequality is that there is nothing that shows better who you are, either as individual groups or society than the choices that you take. So in other words, inequality is not just a choice, but if you really want to know the nature of society, uh, you can, it's difficult to do better than to look at the income distribution of that society. You remember Schumpeter said many years ago that if you want to have a quick look at the at 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 country, uh, what he recommends was to look at their fiscal accounts. And he's fairly right, they are quite transparent. But I would argue that if you look at their inequality, their income distribution, it tells you even a richer story. In fact, uh, one of my paper, I went to, as far as I call it that, every country deserves the inequality it has. And I think certainly that applies to Latin America, my part of the world. And of course it's for particularly for middle income countries, one of the many complications about uh, why it is so difficult to do something about it, even in the part of the world like um, Latin America and Africa, particularly Southern Africa, is that uh, the, the, the forces that are opposing to change are, um, are rather not just powerful, but uh, they do have a lot of stake in it. 
Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to discuss first disposable income inequality, that is to say the inequality after taxes and transference. And later on in the presentation, I'm going to discuss market inequality, which is basically the inequality that comes out to the production processes, meaning is the one before taxes and transference. So let's start with the disposable income inequality that um, also is the one that we have better data and, um, and, and uh, more, more data available for that. And what I'm going to do is to summarize my view on disposable income inequality, trying to identify a few stylized facts that relate to this income distribution. Now, the first one, if you look at the cross-section of the, of the countries in the world, and then we take, uh, there are several databases, Branco has one, the World Bank has another, SALT has another, and you can get one from the Luxembourg Institute. I mean, this, but I decided to, I was working uh, with the World Bank database, uh, database and Roughly, I identified 130 countries, which um, there was relatively reliable data. And also, the, uh, I took out the countries that has less than 1 million inhabitants to, um, and the final sample ended up to be 130. And let's start with the traditional index, which is the Gini. For those of you that may not be familiar with it, it's a very simple uh, statistic which has one big advantage and one big disadvantage. The big advantage is that it gives you an overall picture of inequality within the, within the country. It's, the, it's an statistic that if you want to know what, how unequal or equal is country X, it will give you one number, one figure for the overall inequality. Now, the disadvantage of that is that it's difficult to see what there is inside that. What is that what is making that country to have the inequality it has? But um, like every other statistic, it has almost as a norm, whatever advantage a statistic has, it, it will have the the opposite problem when you look at it from a different perspective. Now, the Gini, if it is zero, is perfect equality. If it's 100, it's perfect inequality. So the higher the number, the higher the level of inequality. Now, I'm not saying anything very original when I say that the key characteristic about um, the, if you do a cross-section of inequality at one point in time here, I'm doing the year 2017, because of the availability of data, um, that there is a huge range of inequality across the world. I mean, as big as it become. It's almost difficult to imagine a range that is wider than this. With countries that have a very or relatively low level of inequality, uh, some Eastern European countries, uh, some Nordic countries, some countries in the European Union, Korea and Taiwan are also there. There is a cluster of countries here that it has a relatively low level of inequality. At the other end, there are countries that has an 
unbelievable level of inequality. I don't, I really don't find another word than to call them some obscene levels of inequality, find basically in some Latin American countries and in Southern Africa. In Africa, there is a, a cluster of countries at the Southern end tip of uh, Africa, which are the middle income, national rich countries of uh, South Africa, Namibia and Botswana, having by far the more, um, the worst level of inequality in the world. So this is not new. If you, if we were to, if we had this data looking back uh, in previous period as uh, there are some databases that allows that, the, there's always this remarkable level of, uh, of diversity. It doesn't mean that nothing is happening within that. Of course, many things are happening, but whatever is happening, the outcome, the broad outcome is this remarkable degree of inequality. And this is something that has been um, a bit at the center of the analysis of inequality uh, particularly since the Second World War, the end of the Second World War onwards, in, in the sense that why there is this diversity? What is behind this diversity? And simplifying, I would I like to cluster different hypotheses and proposition basically on two groups or two camps. One camp, let's call it the neoclassical one, just to give you the name, with the basic idea is that behind this inequality, diversity of inequality, there's, there is some diversity of fundamentals, meaning that somehow inequality is the deterministic outcome of things that uh, would characterize a country as opposed to another. And the variables in that uh, interaction are relatively well known. Uh, often is the income per capita, is whether they're rich or not in national resources, the uh, social mobility, the degree of education. And if you look at the empirical data, we have a more, ever more sophisticated methodologies and ever more imaginative set of explanatory variables trying to explain that diversity. Now, on the other end, the tradition where I come from, you can call it Keynesian, post-Keynesian, structuralist, uh, you can call it uh, whatever you like. I call it the Ricardian tradition, although I'm not so sure that Ricardo would agree with that, but um, that basically tells me that it's not that fundamentals don't matter is that politics, history, and institutions matters at least as much as politics, as fundamentals. Meaning the, in the interaction, the political settlements that are behind this type of uh, uh, diversity of inequality, the issues that relate to politics, to certainly to history and institutions, are as much relevant as fundamental. It's like trying to discuss South African inequality and not taking into account their 
apartheid past. I mean, or Latin America, all the political characteristics of, uh, of the regions and so on. So history, politics, and institutions are as, at least as much relevant as fundamentals. But for me, what I call a Ricardian tradition, it goes a bit further in the sense that for me, inequality is basically the outcome of a conflict, but not just of any type of conflict. It's the outcome of a conflict, which is an antagonistic conflict. And in this antagonistic conflict, there is a multiplicity of actors and struggles. And this obviously is different from the more traditional left-wing view that it tried to identify just one type of struggle and just two type of actors, a class struggle and capital and labor. What I'm talking about here is more a multiplicity of struggles and a multiplicity of actors. And in this interaction of that uh, antagonistic conflict uh, is, is it at the basis of this uh, diversity. And um, one of the characteristics of, at least um, if you think from the perspective of uh, uh, conflict, one of the characteristics of the uh, antagonistic conflict is that uh, because they belong to the political sphere, there is not a merely or a purely logical solution. There is not a purely rational outcome. Uh, what we have is the world of multiple equilibriums. And in these multiple equilibriums are behind this uh, quite a wide diversity of uh, inequalities with certain regional patterns. In other words, the multiple equilibriums, they have some regional components. But uh, I don't think that uh, one can think of the outcome of an antagonistic conflict in political sphere as something that you can uh, think about it, what will be the optimal outcome of this conflict? Um, different if you come from neoclassical um, perspective, of course, if markets were to work and everything was, uh, was fine at the end, if each factor gets the value of its marginal productivity, the, the final uh, diversity of inequality will be pretty much determined, but also will be from this perspective, the most efficient one. From this other one, there isn't such a thing. Uh, there isn't such a thing as the quote unquote optimal uh, or objectively optimal uh, rather than the, the one that given the political settlements and that, and that conflict uh, will, will be the one that will be the outcome. Uh, and the other thing that, and this is very much why I tend to call this tradition um, um, the, tra the Ricardian one, is because if you allow unregulated markets to be behind this inequality, and particularly unregulated markets in, in scenarios in which you basically don't have the crucial 
assumptions of efficient market in a classical economy. You have unregulated markets where agents are not price takers or rules takers, but they are very much price makers and, and rule makers. So in that kind of scenario where agents are able to distort market outcome in their own advantage, as opposed to the traditional thinking that the competitive market agents are rule takers and price takers. And obviously this is, uh, this is a bit of thing to think about that is a bit, uh, um, science fiction, uh, and we somehow the trend is that we have ever ever more this kind of remarkably powerful agents that are able to distort market on their on their own uh, on their own uh, in their own favor. Just to give you one number, now we have agents in financial markets that are able to, to administrate $10 trillion worth of um, financial assets. I mean, $10, $10 trillion of financial assets administrated by just one private equity group. We're talking about, what, 30 times the size of the Chilean economy. I mean, that kind of powerful agents are very much behind the market distortion that leads to that kind of diversity because my instinct is to believe that if market were to work on their own terms, meaning if the agents were all price takers and rule takers, if government were able to internalize the externalities that are in play, which the invisible hand is not able to internalize in the price system. And of course, if contracts were complete and all the rest of the story, you wouldn't have a world with this sort of diversity of equality. See, the, the, the extreme nature of the diversity, I think is associated very much with this issue that um, you have ever more agents capable of distort this market in their own favor. And uh, the second part of the, my Ricardian type of thinking is that in that kind of unregulated market, and in that kind of agents, what it leads is the supremacy of rents, but not just of any rent. It leads to the supremacy of unproductive rents. And therefore, there is some association between the higher the distortion leading to higher level of inequality and inefficiency in terms of, um, in terms of uh, economic outcomes. And uh, I'll want to come back uh, a bit later on about that. But um, as I said, the key political phenomenon I tend to identify here is this capacity of a dysfunctional institution to persist. And as I said, this issue of, the, of having type of domination which tend to be like what in a statistic we like to call a stationary processes, meaning that the, the impact of shocks have a temporary effect. And this in Latin America cannot be more clear. I mean, in the case of Chile, in the last what, half a century, we would have as many shocks as you can imagine. And somehow, the oligarchy has been able to, to swim through them to, to basically to, re, to readapt themselves and to continue 
their process of domination. In that sense that um, uh, oligarchies in Latin America has a much more political flexibility than what one tend to believe. And they are very able to first to constrain change using the kind of Bucanian type of constitutional constraint, but also they are quite able to absorb element of opposing ideologies in order to keep theirs hegemonic. But uh, we will come back, back to that um, as we look at some data on Latin America. So the first stylized fact is a huge diversity, massive controversy about why it is so diverse. My perspective is that it has a lot to do with market distortions and economic leading to also economic, not just high level of inequality, but, um, but economic inefficiency. Now, the second stylized fact is that if we, that if we here, what we did was organize inequality in terms of ranking from less to more. Now, if we do the same, but we organize the same data set, but now we rank them according to the GDP per capita. Uh, I use logs for convenience. Uh, those of you who are not familiar, it's just a monotonic transformation. It doesn't create any, any distortion in, in that sense in the data. It just that it uh, rearranged the space uh, in between the data. Uh, Gabriel, can I just interrupt you a second? Could you? Could you speak more directly into the microphone? I think some people are asking for that. Sorry. Um, let me put it nearby. The second stylized fact is that um, inequality is particularly disparate among middle income countries with some increased diversity among high income countries. If you think about uh, inequality organized by, uh, if you rank it by in, uh, GDP per capita, the traditional vision that comes from Kutznes is that there will be, the end result will be some sort of inverted view, meaning that low-income countries as they move to middle income will tend to increase their level of inequality. Middle-income countries will tend to be the one with the highest level of inequality and the more advanced, more rich countries will tend to have lower level of inequality. And what, what has happened today in the world and this diversity, it's for me, it reflects here specifically, is that among middle income countries today, you have as much diversity as you can imagine. You have some of the worst unequal countries in the world within this middle income range, which is mostly those in the Southern Africa, uh, the South Africa, Botswana, and Namibia. You have then some of the Latin American ones. And on the other end, you have some of the former Soviet Union, except for Russia, of course. You have some of the Eastern European countries with a level of in the, I divide Eastern Europe in, in two groups according uh, to their level of income uh, per capita. Both are relatively similar, but here is the more middle income uh, Eastern Europe. Oh, here, this is what 
perhaps is something that it's, uh, is one of the features of contemporary inequality, this remarkable diversity among middle-income countries. If you look at low-income countries, and what I do here, I split Sub-Saharan Africa in four groups, less than 21,000, between one and 2,000, two to 3,000, more than $4,000 per capita, you will have a bit of the Kuznets early part of the inverted U in the sense that there is some, there is some evidence that, as, that low level, low income countries as they move to low middle and then middle middle, there, will, there seems to be a trend of increasing equality. Here Latin America is also split in two between the lower and the higher middle income Latin America. And then in this kind of upward trend, you have the four sub-Saharan country, you have the lower income Latin, the, the lower income Latin America, India, and, and China. Then you have this remarkable in, uh, diversity of inequality among, among middle income countries. And here there is also something which is relatively new, because uh, what do we find now is that there is an increasing diversity also in terms of the um, inequality of uh, high income countries. Uh, to put it very simple, there is a cluster of advanced countries that had, at least at the level of disposable income, have done what they can in order to retain its previous level of relatively equal levels of inequality, while there are other countries like the US and the Singapore's and Hong Kong's of this world, which had let it go, that uh, had let globalization increase their inequality uh, some substantially. So there is more diversity here than what one would expect a priority. There is certainly more diversity here than what one would probably expect. And then there is this early part of the Kuznets curve, where if you move from low to low middle and low middle to middle middle, there is this trend to, to increase. But again, look at the diversity. This is the point. Look at the huge diversity in inequality. But however, if we move to the next stylized fact, is that suddenly this remarkable diversity of inequality it switches to a remarkable, to this opposite almost, to a degree of high homogeneity of the income distribution among countries if we only do one thing. Each country in the world, we divide it in two halves, the population, the middle and upper middle, five, D5 to D9, and the rich and the poor, D10 and D1 to four. If we only do that, each country in the world, we split in two, the population in two, middle and upper middle, and rich and poor, suddenly we find that the homogeneity, this remarkable heterogeneity disappears. And what we have here is quite an important, quite a high degree of homogeneity, distribution of homogeneity across the world. So the first, issue is how do you square the two things? And um, also, if you look at each half of the population, they basically tend to take a very 
very fair share of the national income. Roughly, they tend to have the, this half, these two half of the population tend to have roughly half of the level of income of each country. Of course, at the tail end, the, the Southern Africa and a couple of Latin America, this breaks a little bit, but for the, of the 130, about almost 120 something, there, the degree of homogeneity is, 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 is huge. Now, it follows, at least arithmetically, that in order to make this compatible to that, which it has to be because those are the same data or the same data source, what happens is the following. It has to be that the huge diversity of inequality that you see across the world is not about how the two half of the population split the pie, because each of them gets almost everywhere across the world, roughly close to half each. The point has to be then that the diversity of inequality in the world has to be related to how each of these half distributed the half of the pie among the sub. Because if these two half were also distributed their half within themselves in a relatively homogeneous way across the world, then you couldn't have this diversity of inequality. So it has to be that either both or at least one of them has to distribute among themselves that half of the pie that goes as a group to them, that half of the pie has to be distributed in a pretty uneven way among that half. And what we find here is that the next stylized fact is precisely that. If you look at the middle and upper middle, and you split the middle and upper middle in the middle defiled five and six and the upper middle seven to nine, again, we go back to a very homogeneous distribution across the world. Meaning not only that half middle and upper middle, let's call it the administrative classes from taking it from institutional economics uh, just for convenience, okay? The administrative classes not only get both public and private, of course, not only get half of the pie, but that half of the pie, they split among themselves in a pretty even way. So all the play, all the inequality play in the, or not all, but most of the large part of the, 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 the real significant play across the world in terms of uh, the diversity of inequality comes how the half of the income that goes, or roughly half of the income that goes to rich and poor, how the rich and poor distribute among themselves that half of the pie. There are countries in which they, they split it evenly, a quarter to each, roughly. Uh, and there are even countries, not very many, but there are countries in which the as a, as a group, the bottom 40 gets even a larger proportion of that half of the pie uh, than the top 10%. Uh, a couple of Eastern European countries and some Nordic countries. And in the one, in the splitting by half, we will see uh, Korea, Taiwan, and, and other countries are, uh, are there. But on the other stream, we have countries where nearly 90% of that half goes to the top 10, 
And what is left to the bottom 40 is just the scrums. It's just basically almost like the, the bare essentials of subsistence. So this is what, if one wants to understand diversity of inequality uh, across the world, I think this is where one, one, one should start. It's not that the whole of the diversity come from here, but by far the greatest deal of that diversity come here. Why is it that we have this remarkable um, diversity in terms of how only half of the population distribute among themselves that half of the roughly half of the national income that goes to them? And here is where it comes into play what I was mentioned about the Ricardian tradition, the, the issue of multiple equilibrium, the antagonistic conflict in the sphere of the politics. Of course, there is no optimum, merely optimal uh, logical outcomes and, and so on, okay? To show the same, but in a different way, look at here in this graph, the, what happened in the world distribution of income on the top 10% and in the bottom 40%. How the top and bottom split among themselves the half of the pie or roughly half of the pie that goes to them. And you can see that the geography of inequality among the top 10% is very much, it's very similar to the one that we saw before regarding the Gini in the, in the overall world. So somehow, the top 10% replicates the genie among themselves. And this is complicated because um, if the genie, what is the genie reflecting? When you mix, when you mix these homogeneous middles with the heterogeneous tail, they, somehow you are mixing pears with apples. So somehow the genie gets a bit, uh, complicated in that area. Because really here, what we find is that the top 10% replicates very much the geography of inequality of the Gini. The bottom 40% is the mirror image of the top 10, because if both sums roughly 50, they are they, and this have this geography, this will have the, the mirror Im image. But look about the middle and upper middle. The middle and upper middle, we walk back to this remarkable homogeneity, even if we rank countries by income per capita, as we do here as well, as opposed to just mere ranking of inequality. So if we look at the same phenomenon from the point of view of GDP per capita, we do find again that there is a huge diversity of inequality in the top and bottom, and pretty little diversity of inequality among the middle, okay? Now, from there comes what I suggested as an index, as an index of inequality. Because, by the way, I didn't call it Palmer ratio, the literature did so, so don't blame me. Because what I say here is that, well, if all the play is here, is here where the diversity of inequality is, if what you want to think about is diversity of inequality, well, let's measure inequality where there is inequality. Uh, basically, this is an index that if what you have in mind and what you want to try to analyze is diversity of inequality across the world, well, then why don't you do a very simple exercise 
which is to see what is the share of national income of the top 10 and what is the share of national income of the bottom 40. So my index is, is it's a very simple ratio, which is look for every, any given country, what is the share of the pie that goes to the top 10 and what is the share of the pie that goes to the bottom 40. And of course, there are countries that we know that there will be around one because we already saw that some countries, the share of the half of the pie that goes to the top 10 and the bottom 40 were very similar. And these are the countries where the Palma ratio then will be around one. Then there, there is an increase, surely an increase in equality across the world, but in these 130 countries which I'm working, what is interest is that in, interesting is that in the first 108, 110, you find a relatively linear increase in inequality across the world. Meaning surely countries are getting more unequal as you, if you rank them, there is a difference as you go from the less unequal to the more unequal. But here there is a relatively linear uh, deterioration of inequality, which means that if in the last bit of the last 20 or so countries in the sample, the same speed of deterioration were to continue, the, the more unequal country in the world will have a Palma ratio of three or three and a half. But instead, they have one which is twice as much, South Africa itself. So somehow in a group of countries, which is not more than 20 or, or so, there is suddenly the speed of deterioration as you run countries uh, increases, uh, certainly not linear anymore, this uh, sort of geometric explosion. So the real diversity of inequality is located in a relatively small number of countries and it is about how in that small number of countries, the top 10 and bottom 40 shares in a very unequal way, the half of the pie or roughly half of the pie to go to them. So if one is interested about the diversity of inequality, one surely should have to address this issue. Else, why in a few countries inequality explodes? And uh, what is there, what is the, the characteristic of their political settlements, what is their, uh, also they are relatively geographically uh, clustered in the sense of Southern Africa and Latin America. So what is so special in those two regional uh, regions in the world where inequality uh, explodes in, in, in this sense. Now, following my index, at least for the first 100 or nearly 110 countries, what you find is that the, the, what leads to that linear increase in inequality is what I call here the D10 plus. Let's look at Finland and Uruguay, countries that of course, nobody will be surprised. They have different income distribution. One has a gene of 27, one, the other one a gene of 40, one a Palma ratio of one, the other one of 1.8, nearly two, meaning the top 10 nearly gets twice as much as the bottom four. Now, but if you look at Finland and Uruguay, the middle and upper middle gets in these two countries actually exactly the same. So all the difference that they have in terms of inequality is that in Finland with the Palma ratio of one, 
of the half or nearly half that goes to the rich and poor, they split it in an even way. While in Uruguay, the top 10 not only gets the same share as in Finland, but they have an extra, they have an additional. They're able to capture an additional proportion of national income, in this case, 7% that point of national income, which come entirely from the bottom 40. If you sum seven, seven plus 16, you go back to the 26. Meaning the size of this sector of this pie, and this is a sector of a pie because of its nature, which I call D10 plus, is, which starts as we can see in some countries it's actually negative in others is zero. And then it start growing from very low levels to high single digit. And in fact, it goes when it gets increasing and increasing, this even moves to double digit. But what is happening here in this group of countries where inequality explodes? Is it simply the fact that this D10 plus sector suddenly it grows out of uh, at an increasing speed, or is there anything else happening? And what I discuss in my work is that there is anything else, there is something else happening. And this is the stalized fact number five. In a very few countries, those 20 or so, what you find is that look at Brazil and South Africa. Brazil, I call extreme inequality, South Africa, and Namibia, Botswana, there's no other word than obscene inequality. And what is the characteristic in this country? Not only the D10 plus goes, grows very, to a much larger level. I mean, 14 percentage point of national income in Brazil, in fact, 18 percentage point in, in South Africa, meaning the bottom 40, it, I mean, it's quite unbelievable. Uh, 20, uh, what now? Um, uh, uh, independence started in, in '94, so we're getting to uh, to a rather long period of democratic regime, and still the bottom 40 percent of the population up, they hardly get seven percent of national income. But there is something else going on, and it's what I call the D10 plus plus as of to differentiate it to D10 plus. And what is this is that only in those very few countries, in these 20 or so countries, we find that the middle and upper middle are not able to get their 50% of national income. So in those countries, inequality explodes because not only D10 plus is growing, that sector of the pie in which the rich take away from the poor, but in those countries, and in only in those countries, the rich is so politically powerful that it's also able to squeeze the middle. In the case of Brazil, takes two percentage, not only takes 14 from the bottom 40, but takes two from the middle and upper middle. In South Africa, not only take 18 percentage point from the bottom 40, but it takes eight percentage point from, from the middle and upper middle. So at least statistically, what happened, what explained the explosion and inequality that, that we were looking here is that suddenly there are two things that needs to be add up. Not only you have the increase in D10 plus, but also you have the, a, a new sector appear into the scene. 
and I define the sector, uh, I say that the, and of course there is an element of arbitrariness. Here I'd say that what the middle and upper middle, what I will expect them to have is that that middle of population will get the middle of the, of the pie. So when they are squeezed below that middle, that I call that D10 plus plus, and it, that sector has to be added to that other sector to get the extra share of the rich. The extra share of the rich in the case of Brazil is not only 14, but it's 14 plus two. Plus two. In the case of South Africa, it's not only, the extra share is not only 18, but it's 18 plus eight. And that is what explains, at least arithmetically, that explosion of inequality. And that's basically the first part of the presentation. I know time is flying, so we'll, I'll have to speed a bit up, but I wanted to really clarify these issues is where they come from, because I think that is basically the key points of my thinking about inequality. Now, if we move now to market inequality, meaning inequality before taxes and transfer. This is inequality that emerged from the, from the market, that emerged from the, from the economic activities. And here, let's look at, to, to explain what I'm talking about, let's again compare in disposable income, still in disposable income, let's compare Germany with Chile. Now, nobody will be surprised again that Germany is less unequal than Chile. Germany's Gini is 32, Chile is 48. The Palma ratio of Germany is 1.2, meaning the top 10 gets only a little bit more than the bottom 40. In Chile is 2.8, meaning that the top 10 gets a huge D10 plus here, plus also like in Brazil, gets a little bit of D10 plus plus, a little bit from the middle. So you will tell me, well, tell me something different, uh, something more original, that, that Chile is more unequal than Germany. But is it? Is it really more unequal in every point of view? If you look at market inequality, market inequality now, the the, my sixth stylized fact, is that there has been a massive increase in inequality, market inequality among high income countries. Look now back Germany and Chile, okay? But now in the market Gini, we don't, I don't have data on decile, so I cannot use the Palmer ratio type of thinking for market inequality, so let's go back to the Gini. Now let's look at Germany and Chile now, but in market inequality. Well, today, Germany is, is in fact more unequal. Market inequality in Germany is even slightly higher than that of Chile. The Chilean one has been relatively stable over time, up and downs according to political, I mean, this is the return to democracy. Um, I mean, yes, there are shocks that have some, remember that um, it's not that shock don't have any impact, but the, the, the impact of shock in Latin America is much uh, lower or much less than what one would expect a priori. And, and what we have here is look at the unbelievable increase in, in market inequality you find in Germany uh, since the neoliberal reforms or the stagflation of the 70s followed in the 80s by the 
by the economic reforms. Uh, this is German reunification, which you can hardly blame it for uh, the increase in equality because it's already was coming very quickly. It didn't help, but it was already coming very quickly up here before. And if you look at other European countries, not all, but most of them, even in the Nordic countries, you will find today level of inequality which are similar to those of Latin America. And this is something that has led me to call this process the Latin Americanization of the OECD. Not only because their market inequality has Latin Americanized, but because also the impact of economic performance, we'll see in a minute, is also related related to that, but also because my, my uh, trying to simplify things, my understanding of this market, increased market inequality, is very much Latin style in the sense that you basically allow uh, large agents, uh, those who are certainly not price taker or rule takers, uh, to distort market in their favor. Here also, of course, financialization is part of the story and so on. Um, Branco has data on the composition of uh, the, the income of the top, and probably he will mention that later, that of course, uh, how much is uh, come on financial assets, how much comes from other type of income. But basically, the point is that in market inequality, uh, today there is nothing, nothing to, no difference between most of uh, European countries, at least the uh, Western European countries, even Nordic one, and uh, Latin America. So, um, and uh, as I already said, and to speed up, Estalize 7 is that these countries that have increased in market inequality in that kind of speed, uh, the US, but also Europe and the Nordic countries, is that they have very little to show for that. Look at what happened if we look at, uh, we plot together the increase in market inequality with uh, on the right hand uh, vertical uh, uh, axis, the investment of GDP. When Germany has this low level of market inequality, it was investing about 30% of GDP. Today, it's had gone to 20. So price to price, very similar to that of the average Latin America from 80 to to, to 1920. And if you look at uh, productivity growth is the same. When productivity, when market inequality in Germany was uh, relatively low, uh, level of uh, productivity growth were between four and 5%. Today is nearly stagnation. So price of price, very much near Latin America. Of course, other things are happening. There was a financial crisis in 2008. There was, a, I mean, a, a, well, the fall of the Soviet Union, the increase of the European uh, uh, Union. I mean, there. I'm not saying this is the only thing that has happened, but on the whole, what we find is that this massive increase in market inequality has been associated with the, with the, with the, with the deterioration of their economic performance. And that deterioration had brought them to very much closer to the type of poor economic performance that you find in Latin America. So not only their income market has uh, deteriorated in this way, but also their economic performance has deteriorated, um, has basically Latin Americanized. 
just to give you one number for the US. If the US, imagine the US today as uh, in terms of GDP is what it is, okay? Now, if the one top 1% 1 in the US were to earn the same share of income that it did at the time of the election of Reagan, which was not, which was quite high to start with, if, this, if the top 1% in the US were to earn the same share of income than when Reagan was elected, the top 1% will earn today $2 trillion, $2 trillion less than what it does. And therefore, the rest of the other 99, $2 trillion less. But it earned $2 trillion. But if you look at investment, it's the other way around. If you look at the US economy today with the same GDP per capita. If the rate of investment as a share of GDP was in the US today, what it was in 1980 when Reagan was elected, there will be $1 trillion more extra of investment in the US. So that is the key combination with my understanding of inequality increasing because of market distortion basically because you have this massive, this huge, huge agents able to distort market on their faith, is that you have the combination of the top 1% increasing their, 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 their share of income, sorry, incre increasing their share of income so that in dollar term, they earn $2, million, $2 trillion more than they would if the same share they would have today was that of Reagan, but at the same time, the level of investment in the US is one trillion less than what it would be had the same share of in investment in GDP today be that of, of Reagan. And I finish here, uh, James, don't uh, panic. Uh, the last stylized fact I want to I want to mention to remember we started late also, so I haven't got to my hour. So don't look accusingly there. Uh, <laughs> the last stylized fact I want to discuss now, there are others that we can leave for the discussion if somebody of you want to come back to that kind of issue. But if you look at middle income country, and since I come originally from, although I live 50 years in England. I certainly, uh, my, my, my mind and soul are uh, somewhere there in, in Chile. And most, and, and a lot of my research is centered on Latin America. And in, so what would be two ways of doing something about inequality uh, in Latin America? And then here, what I distinguish is that there are two very different routes to improve inequality in middle-income countries, not only Latin America, but South Africa, South and so on, which are the following. Look at the top panel of this uh, graph. And go back, let's go back to Germany and Chile. We already know about the blue one, which is market inequality. Today, Germany having a level of market inequality, which actually marginally worse than Chile. However, what Germany does, and not only Germany, Nordic countries, and the mo most of the rest of Europe, they do a pharaonic effort, literally a pharaonic effort to redistribute the effort through taxes and transference, and every day more also financed by debt. And 
you can see that Germany, when it was, when it had a, a much a lower level of inequality, market inequality, in order to get the same, roughly the same genie of 30, it need to improve their market genie by 28%. To wait today, to get to the same destination, a genie of about 30, it has to improve its market genie by a, by 44%. If you look at Sweden, it's 48%, okay, even higher. So if you are in Chile, there is a lot of temptation. And today we're in the middle of presidential campaign and the three candidates, right, center and left, they're basically fighting which one has the better policy to lower the green, which one has the better redistributed policies in order to, to because Chile only improved the market Gini by 12% to get to the current level of disposable income inequality. So the three candidates are really in a kind of competition, which one has the better ideas and which has the better or more radical ideas in terms of redistribution. What do we, what sort of tax structure, what sort of transfer structure, how to use uh, public sector debt, uh, how to orient that rate in order to basically replicate Germany. So clearly the ideology, which is very much at the dominant in the case of Latin America, and certainly in the case of Chile, but in the case of Latin America, and if you go to South Africa, it's no different, is this sort of what I call the new European social democracy type of thinking. Is that just let lead, let's leave the market inequality bit alone. I mean, let's not meddle with that. Those big agents are actually really powerful. They actually had a lot of mobility because obviously uh, that is one of the key characteristics of the new regulation that they themselves have built, how to be so mobile that you can really, I mean, one thing is to want to make a tax for the rich. Another thing is to be able to capture the income or the wealth of the rich, okay? Uh, so basically the implicit assumption is why don't we let markets on their own and let's put a real effort on, 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 on redistribution? Yes, that is a way forward, except that Germany, if you, if you include a public sector education and health, as well as redistributive policies, Germany today spent 25% of GDP, 25% of GDP in order to to, to do this redistributive policy. Something that obviously is shocking the rest of the economy. Obviously no surprise that the, the level of public sector investment is, has collapsed in the way it has and so on. In other words, they, this is a way forward, but is it really sustainable? I mean, the whole of European Union or Western Europe at least, all debts are today above 100% of GDP. I mean, how further you can go and on First, the cost of these redistributed policies, 25% of GDP is really significant. And, and the second, the, the problem that it creates are also complicated because also since the rich and particularly the large corporation don't pay much of their taxes, you have to overtax the middle for sure. And then you have to finance the rest with, uh, with debt. But there is another route. And that is 
at least in the political debate, is pretty much absent. That certainly in, in the middle countries, in the middle income countries that I know, which is I call the Korean route. Compare Brazil with Korea. Brazil is a country in Latin America that has the great, does the largest effort, distributed effort, which reduces its Gini, market Gini, by 14%. But look at uh, Korea. Korea does even a less redistributed effort than in Latin America. It only improves its market inequality by 9%. Why? Because it doesn't have to. The market inequality already comes out of the market activities at a level almost the one that they want to end up. Because if you see Germany and Korea, they both have the same destination. They both end up in a Gini roughly 30. But in order to get to that 30, Germany has to spend a quarter of GDP, has to improve its market inequality nearly by half, while Korea, well, it hardly has to do any redistributive effort in order to get their 30. So not surprisingly, Korea has a much lower level of taxation than Germany, and even then, it has the luxury of having twice as much, a twice higher level of um, level of public sector investment, and uh, it doesn't have the cost of having to use a quarter of GDP in order to undo something which is, from my perspective, artificially created. So the key characteristic of the what called the new social democratic uh, uh, political settlement in in Europe is that you have an artificially created increased market inequality, and then you have to do this pharaonic, pharaonic redistributed effort. So you have inefficiency there, because in order to create that artificially inequality, you need to distort market, as we saw. But then if you have to spend this sort of amount of resources in order to go back to where Korea gets almost without any effort, so not surprisingly, economic performance here is a little bit better than that. But the key issue is how does Korea, and Taiwan is even better, how does these countries, and they're not the only country in the world, how do they get in the market in order to have such low level of uh, market inequality? And that part of the presentation, obviously I don't have time to go because it's already 10 past. So I leave that uh, for discussion if anybody wants to come back, but basically, if you are a, a, a highly unequal country, remember that you have two choices. You can follow the German route or you can follow the Korean route or a mixture of the two, obviously. But if you, if you um, lived in Latin America, you will be forgiven to believe that there is only one way to get to a genie of 30. And the only yeah. way is that of the European social democracy, which is uh, spending an absolute pharaonic amount and making a pharaonic effort in terms of redistributed policy. Thank you, James. Thank you, Gabrielle. As usual, fascinating, demystifying inequality for us. We had Ha Jun here last week talking about accelerated inequality in South Korea. And maybe we can come back to this in the... Um, yeah, it's, it's shown it's, there, but it's pretty. I mean, yes, it's, it's there. But compared you put with it, Germany, is, you put it okay. You put it in a relative sense. But now, rather than me speaking, Branko, please come in. The, yes. the screen is yours. Actually, I enjoyed very much Gabriel's presentation. It was very 
clear, very logical, uh, sort of everything has been very well explained. Now, let me make several points. I will start from the ending, the sort of a pharaonic uh, attempts to reduce market inequality to a low uh, disposable income inequality. Uh, of course, that fact is known, you know, it has been known for a while, you know, uh, the, uh, Korea, Taiwan, and even Japan have much lower market income inequality than uh, Japan is questionable, but the other two definitely uh, have lower market income inequality than many West European countries, including the Nordics, which actually have, as uh, Gabriel mentioned, have had a very substantial increase in inequality. People still, still speak of Sweden as a land of equality, but it's no longer the case. Uh, I would all, I would, so I would totally agree with that. I, this is just purely facts, you know. I would say, however, that the, the picture that Gabriel showed is slightly exaggerated to the extent that the, the difference between market and disposable includes uh, pensions. Uh, if you take pensions out, which you can actually treat as deferred, uh, if you take pensions out and treat the pensions as uh, deferred wages, and then become, they become part of labor income and consequently they become part of market income, then the gap is less. It doesn't mean that it disappears, but it is actually less. Um, and of course the solution to that, as Gabriel mentioned, is actually to work on equalization of market income. That means it is to, to I mean, when it comes to that, it is really to work on deconcentration of capital, income from capital, because that market income, increase in market income is in part due to the increase in wage inequality and in part due to increase in inequality of capital income. And the inequality of capital income comes from very high differences in wealth. So consequently, if you want really to try to reduce inequality in market income, one way to do that is to deconcentrate ownership of wealth, which means uh, worker ownership, or it means also greater advantages for the middle class to invest. And the other way to do that is through reduction of inequality in wages, which includes uh, things like the minimum wage, like higher taxation of very high earnings, and uh, uh, these policies would actually definitely reduce market income inequality and make it possible to have low disposable income inequality without doing these pharaonic redistributions that uh, Gabriel was talking about. Okay, so that's the, for the second part. For the first part, uh, I think it was remarkably clear how Gabriel described it. Um, I think it's actually very impressive when you look at the at the, how the Palma ratio underneath is being sort of created as it were. I have to say, however, that this middle group, uh, the, the five deciles, to some extent, um, how should I say, by definition, they almost have to be close to 50%, because as you know, the sixth and the seventh uh, decile are uh, around the mean. So they do have to have 10% or approximately 10% of the total income by definition. And secondly, uh, as everybody who knows, who works with microdata knows, the, the inequality within each of these deciles, middle deciles, is very, very small. 
If you actually take inequalities by decile and calculate within each decile what is the Gini coefficient of that decile, or you can do the Palmer ratio of that decile and do whatever you want, uh, the middle deciles have very little variability among themselves. In other words, people who are ranked there are very similar in income. Uh, when you go to the bottom decile, in particular the bottom first decile, which actually has many mistakes also, I believe, and the top uh, decile, you have a huge range, and particularly at the top decile, you have really a huge range of income and inequality among these decils is very high. Now, having said that, that that's not actually sort of uh, it's not a critique of the ratio per se, because what the ratio does, I think very nicely, it uh, actually highlights two issues that uh, uh, Gabriel has highlighted. The first one is that inequality then basically becomes, I will put it under quotes, and I would say something about that, the struggle between the top versus the bottom. But then particularly bad inequality becomes the struggle of the top versus the middle. So I think that there we would, the next step in my opinion is to move from this rather mechanistic approach because we are, we, we are actually having these deciles like, uh, you know, struggle of the deciles or struggle among the deciles to actually looking who are people, who, who is behind these deciles. In other words, what is sociologically or politically the background of that struggle. And I, I think actually that, um, and I'll finish with that, that Gabriel's um, highlighting of uh, particularly that second case of obscene inequalities, when we have the squeeze of the middle on top of that, does actually lead us, uh, give us at least some, uh, some clues as to potential uh, political or sociological studies of extremely highly unequal societies where the rich, as I said before, squeeze not only the poor, but actually squeeze the middle class. So uh, that part of our presentation found uh, quite fascinating and uh, I think a, a stepping stone towards a much towards additional political and sociological studies that uh, maybe Gabriel has done already. So that would be all for now. I enjoyed very much the presentation as it's obvious. Franco, thank you very much. Very insightful um, comments. And, and also, we'll raise a lot of questions for people because we might ask, you know, to what extent are the politics behind this, you know, uh, to what extent these patterns of inequality we're looking at and the changes in them help to explain the rise of right-wing populist politics in recent years something I would like Gabrielle to talk about. And Gabrielle also was able to, in his article, discuss much more about why the rich stay rich no matter what. In other words, the survival of the oligarchies by adapting, changing, but the more it changes, the more things stay the same. And I think our students are going to, you know, gobble up your articles. We have passed around the, the two that this talk was based on. And of course, they're still every year reading the, the revenge of the rentier capitalists for understanding financial crisis. So really, thanks. Uh, thanks again. And we hope we can get you back as a kind of annual 
performance and maybe next time in person. Eh? Thank you very much for the invitation and it was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.